I'm not out of order, am I? Am I supposed to say the kids can leave? Right? Okay, so time for children's church. All the children that normally go to children's church, you're free to vacate the premises if you want. Yes. <laughs> but you're welcome to stay. You don't have to leave. Ah, good morning. I want to start this morning. You have your Bibles. Uh, open up to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there, is, there are Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Wow, it's a good group today. Um, turn into Philippians chapter 4. I want to read from verse 10 through verse 18 this morning. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this time that we have to come and open up your word and to hear what you have said to us. Thank you, Father, for the trustworthiness of your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can view it for what it is, your perfect word. And Father, I pray that you would help our minds to be stirred this morning in regard to who you are, how you provide, that we can trust you because you're sovereign, Lord, that you have made a plan for us to partner with other believers to help other believers, to support other believers. We thank you, Lord, for the church. Lord, we thank you for the support system that it is, not only for missionaries who go out, but for all of us who come together each week, who know each other, who benefit from one another's presence and help and counsel. And all the, the spiritual gifts that you have given to each Believer, Lord, that we use those to edify the body of Christ. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy and your kindness. Lord, you have thought of everything. And above all things, Lord, you sent your Son to take our place on a cross, make a way for salvation, Lord, through repentance and faith in him. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I about had a heart attack this morning when I turned to second page in my notes and it was blank. You know, 
for somebody who doesn't wander from the pulpit, you know, that's, you know, I, I got my stuff that I prepared, you know. So I thought for a second maybe the Lord, in the Lord's providence, he was shortening my sermon, but they're all there. I think it was just a double feed, so. <laughs> uh, I was, in a church history book I was reading, I came across a story that I found uh, interesting, I found helpful as a helpful reminder of how people can often miss the providence of God because we don't have a biblical perspective on what's going on around us. And I wanted to share that with, with you. Grafton Burke was a missionary doctor at the hospital in Fort Yukon, Alaska, in the early 1900s. One winter month, an Eskimo runner came to him with a word uh, that a foreigner was lying in the snow about 50 miles away. Dr. Burke at once harnessed his dog team and set forth. He found the famous Canadian Arctic explorer, uh, Viljamir, I know I messed that up, Stephenson, uh, near death from pneumonia. When the explorer recovered and was leaving the hospital, he said to the doctor, Money cannot repay what you've done for me. You've saved my life, but I should like to make one criticism. You would accomplish more if you did not spend so much time in religious work and in prayer. The doctor replied, If it had not been for prayer, I should not be here. This hospital would not have been here, and you would be lying dead in the snow. One of these men had a biblical perspective on life, and the other one did not. Stephenson could only see the doctor's gospel work and prayer um, as a hindrance to some sort of unspecified better work or more quality work or something. And of course, that would uh, clearly be what he felt was of much more value than the true gospel and the true goal of a missionary, which is the saving of souls. He, he thought there was something else more important. It seems clear the doctor ministered the gospel to Stephenson, but he didn't have ears to hear. The gospel was most likely an, an annoyance to him as he thought it necessary to actually verbalize his criticism of the man who saved his life. Dr. Burke, on the other hand, had his eye on at least two things that Stephenson did not. Burke knew that the Lord God is sovereign over all things, and you can tell this from his response to Stephenson and to, and to his criticism. And Burke knew that God was in control. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what the Word of God tells us about our God. Burke also saw events and circumstances as God's providence. But it didn't stop there. He was also vigilant for such things and eager to acknowledge God's providence where he saw it. He wanted there to be no confusion in Stephenson's mind as to who provided for and had the power to spare his life though Stephenson was, was blind to it. Burke's attitude and mindset were much like the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi. As we saw in last week's sermon, Paul didn't want there to be any confusion in the church as to the source of his contentment in life, as to the source of providence and joy. So when we look now at verse 10 in our text in Philippians 4, we must notice right away where Paul puts the true focus of rejoicing and praise. I want us to see the un and understand today that this is the pattern of thinking and focus that you and I should have 
as Christians throughout our lives. If you're truly a Christian, you have every reason to think this way about God. Remember the catalyst for Paul's opening statements here and the overall thrust of the passage is the fact that the church in Philippi had sent him gifts to help him in his time of need, to help meet his needs while he's incarcerated in Rome. So today I'll start part one of the last two sermons in our Philippians series, and this part one of the sermon I've titled this sermon today, Providence and Partnership. Um, And I, I think we can see both of those showing up right here in verse 10, if you want to look with me. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, your translation here might say, now at last you have revived your concern. And let's make sure that we understand what is not being said here. Okay? We need to point out right away that, that it, it sort of sounds like Paul is saying, wow, finally, you've showed some concern for me. It's about time. Right? That's not what he's saying, which is why he tags on the last sentence. He doesn't want them to take this as a rebuke because he's not rebuking them. Okay, so he acknowledges their concern, that they actually had concern for him, but he states they had no opportunity. Clearly, though, it, it doesn't say, and we don't know for sure how long it had been since their last gift to him. There was a gap in time. I'm guessing it was probably several years. The text also doesn't specify why they had no opportunity, but I think it's probably clear that Paul knew the reasons. Um, he doesn't rebuke them for it. The time gap is not a concern of his. It could have been nearly 10 years since their last gift, but that had no bearing on what he wanted them to know. He's just rejoicing in the Lord over the fact that they're giving now, and not even for the reason we might initially think. And the Greek verb Paul used here that has been translated as revived has the meaning to shoot up, to sprout again, or to flourish again. And it is a horticultural term that's describing a plant or a tree that is once again flowering after being dormant for some period of time. And that's the way Paul sees this. Not the time it took, but the beauty of the flourishing again of what had not been there for some time. I also want you to notice who Paul ultimately gives the credit to. And we see it in the first few words in verse 10 there. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He gives God the glory. He recognized, recognizes God is the true source of met needs. Whereas the church, it almost seems, is a byproduct here. I don't say that to minimize the church's giving here, but to make sure we follow Paul's example in how we view our needs being met. This way, we will not rob God of the praise and worship that he is due. As I pointed out last week, This is where Paul diverts uh, and makes a parenthetical statement about his contentment being found in the Lord and not in getting a gift or in good circumstances or bad circumstances. It didn't matter. He made sure they understood this. So I want to recap a bit. Paul is content even if he gets no gift from them. That, That was his point. He's content in the Lord even if he gets no gift from them because God provides what he needs. It's also true that the way God provides and has provided for his needs, in this case, was by the gift from the church. If God hadn't met Paul's needs by the church's gift, he would have met it some other way. And Paul knew this. 
The point is we cannot separate God's providence from the means he uses to dispense it. Our, our problem is we, we can't see often beyond, we can't see the big picture. We can't see beyond the most difficult thing going on in our lives right now at any given moment because we want it to change so badly. Then we can be content. But that is not right thinking. Christians are content in the Lord because of who he is. A loving and gracious father who, out of his abundance, gives to his children all that they could ever need. And most importantly, because he is the one, he's the only one who is sovereign and powerful enough to do so. One of the things that makes a chess player great is their ability to anticipate their opponent's moves. And there's a Norwegian chess player named Magnus Carlsen, um, and he's currently the world champion chess player, a, a grandmaster. He has claimed he can anticipate his opponent's next eight moves before they make them. Um, and this ability is one of the things that sets him and other grandmasters apart from other players, from the rest of the pack. Right? I've never played chess in my life. I, I, I look at the board. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know why the pieces are named what they're named. Um, and the two times that someone tried to teach me chess, I lost interest in the explanation. So I'll stick to checkers. Simple minds play checkers. Uh, but these top players are amazingly gifted people. But at best, what is the grandmaster doing? At best, he's anticipating moves. Based on experience, logic, strategic thinking, and things like this, he can, he can map out some of the possibilities and even some of the most likely moves but he's severely limited by a reality. And the reality is his opponent may or may not make the moves that are possible. He truly has no idea what to expect. He has no idea what the future holds, no ability to change anything. And ultimately, he's still at the mercy of having to react to his opponent's moves, whatever they may be. And that is with just one opponent at a time. One match at a time, one sitting at a time. That's all he can handle. Well, what's the point? Even the most amazingly gifted people we can think of with all their abilities, and we can go ahead and combine all their brain power, they're nothing, absolutely nothing, in comparison with the sovereign God of the universe. Now, this goes to our ability to trust his providence and be content in him as well. And don't miss this. God doesn't just, like the grand master uh, in chess, he doesn't just anticipate things like the grand master does. He, he knows it all. It's a big difference. He has perfect knowledge of every fact, every detail, of every second of every day for all eternity, past, present, and future, before they ever happen. Imagine the power in just that one ability. And Psalm 139.4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. I'm pretty sure our brain would explode if we just knew everything about one person. Never mind knowing everything about everyone. And with God, it's not just your, your life details that he knows, but the person next to you and me. 
and every person on the planet, all 7.8 billion people, every child yet to be born and their children and their children's children, should the Lord tarry that long. Again, of God, David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We read that last week in connection with helping us to understand why we can and should trust God in our circumstances and to be content because he's using all of them, all of those circumstances for his purposes, for reasons known only to him and that sometimes graciously he shows us after the fact. All the many scripture passages, including our opening scripture that David read this morning, um, that say similar things, are pointing us to a very important reality. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, all at the same time. And nothing that ever happens in this life can change or thwart or minimize or derail what he has determined to come to pass. And... Honestly, this is one of, the, one of the most wonderful teachings in all of Scripture. And so much of what we struggle with in terms of understanding what's going on in our lives would be lessened or completely vanish if we truly grasped the sovereignty of God. It was in light of this understanding of God that Paul diverted to say what he did in verses 11 and 13 in Philippians 4. And I spoke about last week, and since we covered all of that last week. I'll move on from that, but kind of the two main things I want to look at today are, as the sermon is titled, Providence and Partnership. Having explained his trust in God as it relates to his contentment, Paul turns back to his original topic of the church and their gift to him. That's what he started with, but he had to take a little sidetrack to clarify some things. And without using the word here, Paul is leading the church to consider the providence of God. Again, the providence of God is directly related to his sovereignty. Why can I trust in God's providence? Because he's in control. It, this doesn't just mean that God provides for his children, though he does. It's more than that. It is provision with knowledge for a purpose. Okay, we, we get our English word provision from a Latin word that means to see beforehand. God can and does provide based on what he knows, which is everything. And he does so according to his own plans, which are perfect because he knows every result of everything that he has determined. As the Lord says to Isaiah, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So whatever we say of God's providence, it is for his purposes, according to his own will. If we wonder what God is doing in our circumstances, we can just know it is ultimately for his purposes in saving undeserved sinners and bringing glory to himself. Calling believers to suffer affliction in this life for the sake of Christ and his church. Calling them to do so with joy in their hearts as they wait for Christ to return. In order that the gospel would be made known to a lost and dying world. In order to save more undeserving sinners who will glorify God in the way they respond to suffering and affliction 
and the difficulties of life with contentment. A really neat result from this is sometimes God reveals to us by virtue of hindsight what he has done. And we, he gives us a glimpse of what he was doing throughout our very difficult circumstances and what a joy it is to be able to see that. But even if he doesn't show us, we can be content in him. Look at the life of Joseph. His brothers threatened to kill him. They throw him into a pit to die. They sold him to slave traders who in turn sold him to an Egyptian named Potiphar, whose wife falsely accused Joseph of rape, who was then thrown in prison. He had a chance to get out by interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer got out and promised to remember to tell Pharaoh about Joseph so he could get out, but the cupbearer forgot about Joseph, and he stayed in prison another two years before the cupbearer remembered him. Those are some nasty circumstances, seemingly for no reason, The universe is against him, is what many people would think, right? Wrong. Where do we see the providence of God in this? We don't find out till later what's going on. When Joseph was 17, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And God, being sovereign, knew that he was going to bring a famine into the land almost 30 years later. God wanted Joseph to be in charge of all of Egypt when the famine came. So he could store up grain beforehand and save the lives of many people, including his own brothers, who tried to kill him. So how did God provide for that? Did he tell Joseph, hey, go move to Egypt and work your way up and try to be in control because uh, I'm going to put a famine in the land 30 years from now? That's not what he did. Um, he gave Joseph a dream knowing he would tell his brothers and it would irritate them, and they would want to kill him for it. But we see God's providence here. God kept them from killing him so that he would be sold to slave traders that God knew would sell him to an Egyptian who God made sure was Potiphar. Genesis 39.3 says about Potiphar uh, in relation to Joseph, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. This is what the slave owner of Joseph sees in him, right? This leads to something. So Potiphar puts him in charge of everything he had. God intended Joseph to rise higher than that. So he used Potiphar's wife to falsely accuse Joseph and that he would be imprisoned for a number of years, making sure he could be in the prison when the cupbearer and the baker got in there making sure he could interpret their dreams. Didn't work out so good for the baker, if you know the story. Um, but the cupbearer got out, and though he forgot about Joseph, there came a time when Pharaoh needed a dream interpreted, and he remembered Joseph. Genesis 41, 41, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, after he interpreted the dream, See, I have set you over all things in the land of Egypt. Now he's in charge of all of Egypt when the famine comes. His brothers come to Egypt because they heard about all the grain that that they had. They encountered Joseph, and and they don't recognize him until Joseph finally reveals who he is because he can't stand it any longer. They knew what they had done and what they intended for their younger brother. So did Joseph. But what did Joseph say? 
He knew it was all God's providence. Genesis 45, 7 and 8. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Later in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says it this way, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This speaks to God's sovereignty and his providence in the life of one belonging to him according to his own purposes. Where we would look at this horrible existence, perhaps, and, and, and see it as very unjust, it's God's prerogative to do whatever mean, use whatever means he sees fit in our lives to accomplish his will. And this was his purpose for Joseph's life. Joseph's life is a perfect example of someone who has learned, as Paul said, we looked at last week, to be brought low, how to abound, and how to be content in the Lord's providence. We mistakenly think that wonderful and great circumstances are a sign that we're in the Lord's will. We, you can't read through the scriptures and come to that conclusion. So we see God's providence. Now let's talk about partnership and looking at back at our Philippians text in 4, verses 14 and 16. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul trusted God completely and was perfectly content being incarcerated in Rome because that was what God had purposed for his life. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, he says to the Philippians. Again, acknowledging the gifts they sent and the kindness that it was toward him. He's grateful for their partnership with him. It's interesting that we can seem to think there's a contradiction here in what Paul is saying, but, but there isn't. Thanks for the gift, he says in verse 10. Not that I need it, verse 11, because I'm content in the Lord, because in all my affliction he's providing me the strength to do all things, verses 11 through 13. But it was kind of you anyway, 14. Not that I'm looking for a gift, 17. I've received full payment, and so on. It seems like he's jumping back and forth. But there's no contradiction here. What we're seeing is it really is the harmony between God being sovereign, his people relying on his providence, and the fact that God's providence is carried out by his people for his people. It's fitting that we would have our missions moment this week and we'd be talking about sending some members of our church to go um, out into the mission field. Um, this is what we do as a church, and we've done it for as long as I've been here. Uh, we, we send money. We send people. We send resources. We pray for missionaries here in our country and overseas. It's just what the church at Philippi was doing for Paul as well. This has been God's pattern for the church since it was established in the first century. And we're carrying that on in our time. We are 
God's providence for the missionaries that we partner with. What we don't want to do is conclude, because God's providence sustains us as Christians, we don't need to help finance and support missionaries. We don't conclude that. We don't say, well, God will provide for their needs and then do nothing. We're not working against God's providence we, or separate from God's providence. We are privileged to be able to provide that support as God's providence. Could God speak money into existence and have it show up in the wallets of missionaries? Sure. But what does he do? He convicts churches, Christians, of the need to go and of the need to send and of the need to pray so the gospel will go out to the world. Paul surely recognized it this way as we look at what he said in verses 15 and 16 in our, in our text. He said, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They were his partners, specifically in giving and receiving. As mentioned here, they were also his partners. If you look back at chapter 1, they were also his partners in the gospel, and he viewed it that way. Even if they weren't physically there with him, all of them, though Epaphroditus was, we look at Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5, and see what Paul said at the beginning of this letter. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, the giving and receiving is ultimately for the spreading of the gospel. And Paul's rejoicing in that, not only that they financially have given to him, but even like we just saw in the beginning of the letter, he considers them his partners in the gospel. When he talks about the beginning of the gospel, Paul's referring, uh, what he's referring to is uh, here, when he first arrived in, in the Macedonian city of Philippi, uh, he, he preached the gospel to Lydia and the other women who were down by the water. And this is recorded in Acts 16. The Holy Spirit led Paul uh, there to Macedonia, uh, the region where Philippi is, through a vision. It was there that he was also thrown into prison. Um, God provided an earthquake to free him. He preached the gospel to the jailer, and he and his family trusted Christ as their Savior. Paul's including the time after he left Mas the Macedonian region as the beginning of the gospel because of the new places he was going and where he was taking the gospel message with the church's help. Okay, he, he made a point, though, to say they were partnering with him even before he left Macedonia because he mentioned another Macedonian city, uh, that of Thessalonica, in which they sent him gifts. He said more than once. They did it once and again. Okay, they, were, they were sure partners of his, helping to support him in his missionary work. And after that, he went to Berea and Athens and Corinth. Let's talk about his time in Corinth and how the church's giving helped him there. Let's see that. Uh, look over with me, if you would, at Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. 
looking at verses 1 through 5. And this is the account of, of Paul's time there from Luke. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, so we see there Paul and Silas came from Macedonia. We're reminded that here that Paul is a skilled tent maker. He, he ends up staying and working with Aquila and Priscilla because they're in the same trade. They're also tent makers. He's making a living. He's bringing the gospel to the Jews and the Greeks. He's about the Lord's business. Why is this important? Because we're now able to see the benefit of the church in Philippi helping to support his ministry in Corinth. How? Well, according to that passage, where did Timothy and Silas come from while Paul was there in Corinth? They came from Macedonia. They were left behind in Macedonia, where Philippi is. And we're told that they found Paul doing what Paul did. Right? He, was, he said he was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. We can go then to 2 Corinthians Chapter 11, verse 9, a letter uh, Paul wrote uh, to address the church in that city. And in it, he reminded them of the time that Timothy and Silas came from Macedonia. Paul mentioned there in the Acts 18 passage. Here in 2 Corinthians, we get details um, of what they did when they got there that Luke didn't give us in chapter 18 of Acts. And if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll see it uh, in a minute here. Um, not only had the people been in Corinth been negatively influenced because of the false apostles and their attacks on Paul's ministry and his character, but worse, their attack on the true gospel of Jesus Christ and how they profited off of it, these false apostles did. As we read, listen to how Paul describes the benefit to the church in Corinth because of the giving of the Macedonian church. This would be the Philippians. Okay, look at, at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. Starting in verse 7, again, he's addressing with them the, the situation with the false apostles. He says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Okay, here Paul is contrasting what he does, what he does with what the false apostles do. Basically, they, they charged the church money to, to deliver them a false gospel. Verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. How did Paul not burden the church in Corinth? by working as a tent maker and relying on the support from the Macedonian church. Paul didn't want 
to burden this young church with providing a living for him. But he had no problem accepting the support from the established church in Philippi. And our missionaries overseas and in other places are often in fledgling churches with no means to support a pastor. Where does that funding come from? The providence of God through the giving and sending of gifts from churches like ours. You see how this works. What a blessing that the Lord has given us this church body through his providence, a well-supplied and generous congregation to be what God uses in his providence for missionaries and young churches around the world. When we give, we're partnering with the missionaries we support. And maybe you can't go. Maybe, maybe you can only give and pray. Maybe you can't give, but you can pray. It is still a partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 17 in our Philippians passage is where Paul makes the point again that even though he has commended the church for their giving, it is not the gift itself that he's looking for. Another clear reference to his resolve to be content in the Lord in any and every circumstance. He says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift. He's commending them for it, but he says, not that I'm seeking it, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Interesting. Paul here is expressing joy, not in what he got from them, though it did provide for his needs, but what their giving meant for their own spiritual lives as Christians. This is a way in which the giver benefits from the giving, and we see it all throughout Scripture. At another point in his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul's commending them for being ready to give a generous financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. He wanted to give them the time to check their motivation and attitude before giving. And this passage, uh, where he, this is the same passage where you know the familiar verse about the Lord loves a cheerful giver. He also makes a point about the correlation between generosity and blessing. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he says to the Corinthian church, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, verses like this have been abused tremendously in our, in our country. This is not talking about you getting rich because you gave some money to the poor. This is about reaping bountifully in eternity. This is about spiritual blessing. That's not to say the Lord may not bless you financially if you are a cheerful and generous giver. He may very well do that. Perhaps because you've proven faithful with what he's given you. But it is also true that the Lord might take it all away from you. Not because you've done something wrong, but because he has something else for you. He has something else to teach you. So it's essential that we have right thinking about the blessings that we get from our obedience to God and providing for the gospel ministry. We can know and look forward to what the Lord has in store for us, and we should, but we must be careful about our motivations. Our minds 
Our attitudes need to be on the Lord and what his will is and how we can partake in the ministry of the gospel, how we can partner in the ministry of the gospel, knowing that the Lord will bless that first and foremost for his glory and the salvation of other souls, and then we can praise him like Paul did. He thought of other people, not himself. He knew full well the spiritual blessings that awaited him because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And Paul warned Timothy this way in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And this is spiritual blessings. There is so much waiting for us when Christ comes back. But is that why we do things? I think it's okay to think about it. It's a promise of God's. It's the truth. It is something to look forward to, but we have to be careful. This, these spiritual blessings are stored up treasure in heaven that the Lord will provide. If your attitude is to get more money, you've already gone wrong. You're, you're not content. You're storing up treasure on earth where rust and moth destroy. point is, we don't put our hopes and contentment in the riches of this world, but the gracious providence of God, even if in this life his providence is accomplished through our suffering and poverty. In which case, can we not still be content because of who God is? That's what we see from Paul. That's what we saw from Joseph. Instead, we're to have Paul's attitude of contentment in the Lord. God's providence didn't change Paul's circumstances. God's providence didn't set him free from prison when he wanted to be set free from prison. God's providence didn't keep him from suffering. In fact, it's what put him there. God's providence. What did God's providence do for Paul in these circumstances as he's writing to the church in Philippi? God's providence was the perfect gift at just the right time from the people in the church of Philippi who Paul loved and who loved Paul. They were in partnership with him in the gospel, the gospel work that he was doing. This is a godly and biblical pattern. We're not doing something strange or new or American when we send money to missionaries, when we support our own people who want to go onto the mission field. Can God do it a different way that doesn't involve you and I? He, he can. Why does he do it this way? Because you and I get to participate with him and benefit from the joy of his providence. And ultimately, this results in more praise and worship and honor towards God results in our benefit as he makes us more Christ-like each and every day. We have to take God at his word. We must see life this way. 
And next week, we'll finish up and see how Paul describes his partnership, the church's partnership with him, as really as priestly activity on our part when you are giving, as well as we'll see and be reminded that God will supply all of our needs. You may never go overseas, but you can partner with those who are. You may never go overseas, but you have a role as a missionary with the people that God has placed in your life who don't know him, whether it's at school or work, wherever you encounter people that don't know Christ. You have a role as a missionary. You share the gospel with them. But I don't want you to miss the connection between providence and partnership that when the church helps support the church and believers who are bringing the gospel it is a partnership in the gospel with them and it is a providence of God using you to help support people who are bringing the gospel to some of the most difficult places in the world so let's not forget the connection there between what we do, it's not just that we give. We are partnering. And we are part of God's plan and providence for so many people who have set their lives apart to bring the gospel to lost people overseas and within our own country as well. So let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you again for this time. Lord, thank you for your word that continually teaches us of your sovereignty, that you are in control. Things are not accidents. You're using all circumstances, in particular for your people, for their good, or to accomplish your will, to bring the gospel to the lost world. We thank you for it. Thank you for the privilege of being able to partner with Christians around the world, some of whom we can are know in the places we saw in the video. It's no joke, Lord. Their commitment to Christ in those places is no joke. I pray that we will take our commitment to Christ seriously. Though you have blessed us tremendously with riches compared to the rest of the world, help us, Lord, to generously give what you have given to us. Help us to meet the needs of Christians around the world who are bringing the gospel to the lost. Pray that it would be a, a deep concern of ours. If it hasn't been, Lord, that you would make it so. Thank you for those in our congregation who are planning to go to Belize. Pray, Lord, that you would bless them, encourage them, encourage them by the fellowship of believers here, whether it be through prayer, encouraging words or letters, financial giving. There are so many ways that we can partner, Lord. It's not just about money. Thank you, Lord, again, for our salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. We want to praise him, honor him, and glorify him. We ask you, Lord, to continue to sanctify us, your word. In Jesus' name we pray.